Man, amen, amen. Isn't God good? Let's give God some applause one more time. Thank you, choir. Thank you for leading us in worship. Good morning again, Redeemer. We're going to uh, start a new sermon series today. It'll run uh, for seven weeks. We're going to be looking at the I Am statements of Jesus. And before we read uh, John 6, I want to give you um, just some interpretive principles uh, or the way that I think we ought to be thinking about uh, these statements. Uh, first, John is a gospel that to understand the, the, the middle or the beginning, you really do have to understand the end. At the end of John's gospel in John chapter 20, he says, Jesus did many other signs, but these have been written that you might see them and believe in the Son, and that by believing you will have life in his name. So John's gospel is written around signs, the things that Jesus says and does, and it's carefully curated. He's not giving you everything that Jesus said or everything that Jesus does, because in John 21, he says that were everything written that Jesus did or that Jesus said in the hearing of people, he says there are not enough trees on the planet to print it. There wouldn't be enough books to see and hear every single thing Jesus did. But what I have written is sufficient. So we're not lacking anything. That's the first thing that's important when you think about John's gospel. With respect to the I am statements, here are a few important things. First, this is Jesus's self-disclosure. In other words, this is it's Jesus as if he chooses to pull the veil back and say, let me show you who I really am. This is his self-disclosure. Uh, secondly, that you'll notice uh, that when Jesus says, I am, he does not say, I was this or I will become this. He says, I am this, which means that he has always been this which means that right now he is still this. It meant when he said it, he was that. And before he said it, he was that. In other words, we're, we're peering into this eternal God who is unchanging. Third, when Jesus makes these I am claims, like I am the truth, the way, the life, I am the resurrection, I am uh, the good shepherd, I am the vine, I am the way, that, that, that he, or I am the bread of heaven, he uses this word, the, and it's one of the most significant words in John's gospel. In other words, he does not say, I am a truth, or I am a resurrection. He says, no, I am the resurrection. You will not find resurrection in anywhere else or anyone else. I am the good shepherd. There are no good shepherds out there like me who will lead you into green pastures. And so when the world tells you that there is truth out there apart from Jesus, Jesus says, no, I am truth. And there is no truth apart from me. This is exclusivity that he's claiming when he says this. Fourth, when he says these I am statements, he is doing more than revealing something about himself. He is making a claim that he is God. In Exodus, when Moses was commissioned and sent to Egypt to free them by the power of God and the mighty hand of God, Moses asked the Lord who appeared to him in the burning bush, who shall I say sent me? You know what God told Abraham, I mean Moses? Tell them, I am sent you. 
I am who I am sends you. And so when Jesus says, I am, when they are about to arrest him and the soldiers fall back, it's because he is showing his deity. When he says, I am the good shepherd, I and the father are one, and they want to stone him. You know what they want to stone him for? For blasphemy. They know what he's saying every time he says this. Fifth, and finally, that when Jesus says something about himself, sometimes he explicitly says something about us in the same uh, line of thought. So he'll say, I am the good shepherd, and you are what? Sheep. I am the true vine, and you are what? Branches. You see what Jesus is doing? You can't study an I am statement and peer into who he is without then asking the text, the, the text, well, what are you revealing about me? Because if you are this, then you must be saying something about me. And sometimes it's explicit where you're the sheep. And other times, like our passage this morning, we have to do some digging because he's going to say, I am the bread, the true living bread, the bread of life. He doesn't quite tell us who we are, but by looking at the passage, you can see. So I think these are key principles to help us interpret the passage. So we're going to read John 6, 16 down through 40. I had Wilson read the first part. I'll touch on the ending. This is a, a heady, weighty, big, important passage. We can't touch on everything, so I'll try to pull out the, the major themes. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. They got into a boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at land to which they were going. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. And so when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you were seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of loaves. Do not work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do? that we may see and believe you. What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it, it is written. He gave them the bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then Jesus said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, 
and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Amen. Let's pray together. Uh, Father in heaven, thank you for your word, and uh, thank you for the power uh, that is in your word. Uh, Your word is alive, it is sharp, it is active, uh, it is living, it is inspired, it is breathed out by uh, God. And therefore, Lord, you command your servant Timothy to devote himself to the public reading of Scripture. And so, Lord, were I to take my seat uh, right now, uh, your word is effectual to uh, give life and hope and change to your people. You do not need me, and yet you are pleased, God, to use servants to rightly divide and expound your word that Jesus may be lifted up. And so, Father, I pray uh, that you will captivate our hearts, not myself. I pray that eloquence or uh, the order of words or creative illustrations, Lord, whatever it is, Lord, that we can hang our hats on and say, uh, man, that was great. I pray that that would not be so. I pray that above all things that we would see Jesus. May we see him as beautiful and believable. And by seeing him, would you rescue and build up your people? Would you do this for your glory? I pray. Amen. So we, we love uh, good deals in, uh, around our house. Um, for, for example, I know that every year Apple does a back-to-school sale, and so if we have to get new devices, we just won't buy them un- until around July or August, and Apple will throw in a free pair of headphones. And um, so one year we bought our daughter a, a, a laptop, and we got the free headphones, and we saved the headphones for six months, and that was her Christmas present, right? <laughs> That's how we roll, right? During COVID, uh, we learned that the Fresh Market puts their chicken breast and beef on sale on Tuesday nights only. And so once we found that out, Tuesday night was a date night uh, to, uh, uh, to the store to get chicken and to get beef. And we would put it in our deep freezer. We know that Tuesday nights, kids eat free at uh, the Chick-fil-A on County Line Road. And so... We'll get two adult meals and get the two kids meals, and and that is dinner. When we bought our house, the first house that we bought together, we we said, well, we're going to buy foreclosure. And so we stayed with a lady named Dina until we found a foreclosed house. And that's just kind of how we are. We we, we like good deals. And uh, nothing beats a two for one. (laughs) I don't care what it is. Two, two for anything is a good deal, right? Uh, it doesn't, you don't have to know what it is. It, you, you give me one free pen, and I buy one pen, then we're winning, right? Two for one. It doesn't matter what it is. It signals a deal. In John chapter 6, you get a two for one. It's a deal of the ages. 
that John is disclosing two glorious uh, attributes of Jesus, two I am's bound up in one single chapter. And you may be wondering, where is it, Pastor L? I, I see I am the bread of life, right? I see that in verse 35 and verse 48 and verse 51 where he calls himself the living bread. So, so he's using those interchangeably. Well, I want to submit to you that it's right up there in verse 20. But he said to them, it is I. Do not be afraid. You could also translate that I am. Do not be afraid. In other words, what you're getting in one chapter is Two instances when Jesus says, I am. And here's what I want to do this morning. Because of our interpretive principle that we laid out at the beginning, when Jesus reveals something about himself, let's not start there first. Let's start with, what are you telling me about me? And once we see what you're saying about us, then we're prepared to receive what you say about you. You, you. you have to work it that way. So here's what I want to do. I think John is first giving us a lesson on humanity. Who are we? Then he's going to give us a lesson on Jesus or Christology. Who is he? And then he's going to say, well, how do you get it, right? How, how, how do, does the excellencies and the glories and the things that Jesus is and he promises us, how, how is that realized by us? So let's start with the first one, a lesson on humanity. If you had to use two adjectives to describe humans, and not just general humans, I mean yourself, what would you say? You might say beautiful, intelligent, dignified, valuable, powerful, noble. And I would say yes and amen to all of that. I don't care who you are, you are made in the image of God and you have dignity and beauty and inerrant worth that was conferred upon you by Christ himself. And so we would be right to use those types of adjectives to describe humans, but humans also have a dark side, a shadow side, so to speak. The same person that can be brilliant can also be brutal. Now, why would I start there? Because I think this is what John is doing. You might remember at the opening verses of John, he says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so what is John doing? He's giving us his glorious picture of who Jesus is. Jesus's beginning is not when he was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary. Jesus was already in the beginning, John says, creating all things, upholding all things by his powerful word. And so what John wants us to do is to get a glimpse of the glory of Christ. And then John almost seamlessly starts to talk about humans. What does he say about humans in the opening chapter? He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. You catch that? You got Jesus and glory and splendor and beauty and holiness and majesty and eternality. And then you get a glimpse of humans. The one who made all things actually stepped into time and space and we rebelled against him. We did not know him. 
And what John is doing throughout his entire gospel is putting that before us. I want to show you him and I want to show you you. I want to show you you and I want to show you him. He's doing that throughout the entire gospel so that John 4, he talks about living water and this woman says, well, give me the living water all the time. Whoo, just completely misses it. And so what's going on in this passage? The initial setting is the Sea of Galilee or the Sea of Tiberias. We're told that a large crowd, uh, John actually tells us that that 5,000, look at that. Look at verse 10. Had the people sit down that there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. And that's just the men. That's not the women. And that's not the children. Some scholars say that this could be 15 to 20,000 people following Jesus. Now, why are they following Jesus? Look up there in, in, in verse 2. The large crowd was following him because they saw signs that he was doing on the sick. Now, this group in particular, they're, they're the poor class of Jews. Now, how do we know? Only John tells us that the little boy had salted fish, and he says barley cakes. One scholar says barley was the bread of the poor, that that was a poor person's bread in Jesus' day. And so it all makes sense that you got 15 to 20,000 poor, working class, barely making it people who don't have access to health care who can't just run into Jerusalem and see a doctor. And all of a sudden, this Jesus guy comes to them and he starts to heal them. And so they flock to him, they come to him, and then they run out of food. And there's a problem, right? And so Jesus wants to test Philip. And he tells us, John tells us, This is a test. Look at verse six. He said this to test him, but Jesus already knew what he would do. Jesus knows exactly when it is, who's with him and what he's about to do. But what he's doing is summoning and calling out humanity. Let me show you who you really are. And so Jesus says, uh, Philip, how are we going to feed these people? Philip says, Jesus, 200 denarii is not enough. Uh, 200 denarii is what the average Jew would make in a year. So Philip is saying, look, even if we were to give a year's worth of wages, it does not, we cannot buy enough bread for all of these people. Now here's what's hard, is Philip was called by Jesus in John 1. So Philip was there in John 2. He saw the water being turned to wine. He was there when the servants Uh, child was about to die and Jesus healed. He was there all along and yet it is Philip who in the moment cannot seem to think that Jesus can overcome this and that is a glimpse. It is a glimpse into humanity. Aren't we kind of like that? We have seen his faithfulness. We have seen him fix our messes. We have seen him pardon our iniquity. We've seen him show up when there was no way out and he showed up. And yet, when we go further down the road, a new trial come, a new crisis come, and then aren't we like Philip? Well, how are we going to get out of this? Didn't you just see God get you out of this over here? We're forgetful. 
It's a glimpse of humanity. We see, but we don't see. We see, but we don't remember. But it gets worse. After all of this, Jesus does do the miracle. He feeds them. And it's important, right, that he says, gather up the fragments that nothing may be lost. I think that's, that's intentional because when Jesus says it over in the later part, he says, I have come that I may, might not lose any not any single crumb that the Father gives me, I won't lose it. And so when Jesus tells them, don't take leftovers, gather everything up, nothing wasted, everything comes back, he's actually foreshadowing redemption. He's actually saying over there when he does the miracle that that's how it's going to be on that glorious day. Ain't nobody going to fall out the box. He who started a good work in you will complete it in the day of Christ Jesus. You will not be left behind. But that's in the front, right? But what happens? Look at verse 15. Perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain. You catch that? When he did the miracle, this crowd of people was ready to crown him with many crowns. We tend to think that the only time the Jews got Jesus' kingship wrong was on Palm Sunday. But this is a year before Palm Sunday at that Passover, and they did it again there. They want to make him king just because he gave them bread. And then Jesus withdrew from them and went to the mountain. And notice what he did to his disciples. Hey, you guys get out of here. Go to the other side. And just like that, the disciples go from being used by Jesus to distribute food on the heights of the world. And just like that, a storm comes and they're vulnerable. This is another glimpse into humanity. For all our ingenuity, the wind can kill us. For all of our intelligence, two feet of water can drown you. For all the things we can do with trees and make boats and homes, one can fall on you and take your life. For all of our might, a virus can get inside of you and destroy you. For all of our power and all the good things you might want to say about us, we are still one act of nature away from death. And it gets worse. The crowd, having benefited from the miraculous feeding, they could not get their minds off the bread. They wanted more. They were on the prowl. And when they did not see Jesus on the side that they were on and saw his disciples sail away to the other side, they got in a boat or got in boats and some probably walked and went to the other side and found Jesus. And their initial question to Jesus was, Rabbi, look at verse 25. When did you come here? Now look at what Jesus says. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. In other words, they're being duplicitous. They're asking Jesus, how did you get here? But Jesus says, I know what you're really after. You're really after more bread. They were duplicitous. They were saying one thing and after another. And Jesus says, you ought to be wondering how I made it to the other side. You ought to be wondering what power did I have to do what I did. You ought to be wondering who is this that treads on the water? Who is this that tells the winds and the waves to obey them? But that is not what you're chasing me for. You're chasing me for a happy meal. 
You're walking and getting in boats for a four for four. You're coming at me to get a deal. What is John showing us? This is biblical anthropology 101. We are vulnerable creatures. When do you see your vulnerability? I saw it this week. I was working late on Wednesday and was working in the conference room in the church office. And I got up and I saw a young man going through some of your, or trying to get into some of your cars here on a Wednesday night. And I saw him walk and lift up a door handle, walk to the next car, lift up a door handle, walk to the next car, lift up a door handle. And I didn't see anybody outside. And I kind of, not panicked, but I kind of went into like dad mode. I'm like, man, we got kids over there. Whoever this is can't walk up into the church, right? And so I grabbed my phone and I kind of, I scout Buddy out. I'm looking at him and I'm walking. And all of a sudden he looks at me and it looks like he's walking towards his front door. Then he looks back at me and then he, he, he starts to walk around that sidewalk and walk that way. And he keeps looking back. And all of a sudden, he stopped walking away from me. He turned. Seeing me walking towards him, he started to walk towards me. And I was like, oh, I might have bit off more than I can chew, right? I, you know, I, I wouldn't expect him. I wouldn't expect that. And in an instant, I'm like, man, my wife could be a widow. I felt it. When do you feel vulnerable and weak for all of your strength? When do you feel it? We, like them, have this insatiable appetite for things that cannot ultimately satisfy we fix our attention on good things and we make them ultimate things and we are relentless like them working to get them. For them it was bread, for, for some it's likes, for others it's beauty, for others it's pleasure, for others it's money, for others it's power, for others it's sexual desire, for others it's entertainment, for others it's popularity, for some it's politics, for some it's just more projects at work to justify my identity, for some it's another pound lost, for others it's another another ounce of muscle gain. John's point is that we are like them. We fix our minds on things that are passing and fleeting and do not satisfy. We are like them with insatiable appetites for more and more and more and more. And you can fill in the blank. This is who we are. Now, second thing, who is Jesus and what does he offer? John tells us that the, the time when all of this is happening is around Passover. Look at verse 4. When y'all get to it, say the Passover. Y'all see it? Verse 4. The Passover. All right, I just want y'all to see it. Y'all don't need to be seeing me. Y'all, we got to see what's happening in John's gospel. That's a clue. This is probably the second of the three Passovers 
that Jesus will experience with his disciples during his earthly ministry. Now, why am I saying that? Back at John 2, 13, John tells us it was the Passover. Right here in 6, 4, it's the Passover. And John 11 through 18, it's the final Passover, right? So John is writing his gospel around Jewish feasts and around Jewish places and around Jewish holy days and around Jewish festivals. And so when John puts that there, that Passover was at hand, what we're supposed to do to be a good interpreter of the Bible is to have one finger on, okay, John, where did Passover begin? Exodus 12. Now, did you notice something else after the mention of Passover? What happened when, Egypt, when the Israelites left Egypt on the, after the Passover and they made it out? What happened? What's the next watershed moment in their deliverance? Anybody? They had to cross a what? A sea, or the, the Red Sea, right? You know what that is? Exodus 14. And what happens when they make it through the sea into the wilderness on the other side when they ran out of food that they brought out of Egypt? They ran out when they made it through. And so what did they need to be rained down from heaven when they were in the wilderness on the other side of the sea after they left Egypt? Anybody? Manna. Now, that's Exodus 12, 14, and 16. That, that's, the, that's the flow. Those are big watershed moments. Did you notice that that is the structure of this passage? John says Passover's at hand. What happens after Passover, after the, the, the food? There's a sea episode. And then when does manna get talked about? When do they tell Jesus to rain down manna like Moses? It's on the other side. In other words, John wants us to have our fingers on Exodus 12 and 14 to understand what's happening here. Passover was a feast of young male lamb, one year old, with no blemishes. He must be killed. He must be consumed. No food left over. It must be burned up completely. This blood placed on the doorpost. You must eat unleavened bread. No yeast inside the bread. It had to be pure. You had to eat bitter herbs to remind you of the bitterness in your days in Egypt. God engaged all of their senses. You had to see with your eyes and select with your hands and examine. You had to slaughter. You had to hear the cries of the lamb whose life is escaping him. You had to smell the bitter herbs and smell the bread cooking and smell the lamb roasting. And you had to taste it. In other words, this Passover was sensory overload to communicate two overarching things. You are needy and I am mighty. You are needy and I am mighty. Taste it, touch it, smell it, eat it, hear it. And they were not only needy 
when they were under Pharaoh's hand. They were in need of their own redemption. They did not get a pass because they were Jews. If the Jews did not put the blood of the lamb on their doors, God was just on over the anyone. And when they got out, they needed deliverance when they got to the sea. They needed provision in the wilderness. What does this have to do with John 6? Because Jesus says, I'm the prophet. I'm greater than Moses. I'm the one in Deuteronomy 18 that Moses told you about, that a prophet like me is coming after you, after me, and he will be selected from among you. And you must listen to him. And so when Jesus says, I am, in the context of Passover, in the context of the discussion of manna, in the context of a sea miracle, you know what he's trying to get them to see? I'm here. You're needy. And you are unsafe. And you are vulnerable. And you are sinful but I'm here to satisfy you. I'm here to pardon you. I'm here to feed you. I'm here to lead you into the land of promise. I'm here to blot out your sin. I'm here to deliver you from the mighty hand of a tyrant worse than Pharaoh. And Jesus proves this, right? You see this in three different ways. You see it when he refuses to accept their crown. They want to make him king in verse 15. And it says, Jesus withdrew. He withdrew again to the mountain by himself to pray. Now, why would Jesus do that? Why would you leave the, 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 the cries of 15 to 20,000 people, crown him, crown him, crown him? You know why? Because he is going to be a king, but it's not going to be that way. He's going to become king by dying. He knows, Genesis 3, that his heel must be struck. He knows that humiliation will come first and then exaltation. He knows that his kingdom is not like this world. He knows that he must lay down his life. And so he will not be their king that way right then, right there. That's a sign. You see him walking on water. And if you were to lay what's happening here on top of Exodus chapter 14, the language is almost identical. When they get to the sea and Pharaoh is behind them, Moses says, fear not. The Lord will work salvation for you today. Did you notice what Jesus says? He doesn't say fear not. The Lord is going to work for salvation for you today. He says, fear not, I'm here. In other words, there is none coming after me. In other words, I'm the one that's going to work salvation for you, and I'm doing it right here and right now. And did you notice that when he does that, they, he gets in the boat with them, and John says they immediately were at shore. Who is this that just took this distance? and diminished it and landed them safely. It's I am. It's Jesus. And it gets better. He shows this in giving them bread that points to the giving of his life later. 
You see, Moses could not do this. Moses could not give them bread and then say, I'm going to give you something better later. Moses could only satisfy their physical need. And here's what Jesus does. Jesus gives them that. Notice he does not send them home starving. He does not say, hey, you should have planned better today, right? He doesn't. He meets them right then and there and feeds them but he doesn't leave it there. He understands the relationship between physical desires and the work that humans will go through to satisfy them and the deeper longings beneath them that they point to. John O., uh, he's a pastor in Atlanta. He has a book entitled, We Go On, and he's reflecting on the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is the classic example of the search for meaning, the search for satisfaction, the search for fulfillment and pleasure and possessions and power and wealth. But he's writing this book uh, and he's trying to do a commentary on the book of Ecclesiastes, but he quotes Judith Grizel. She's written a book, Never Enough, and she was an addict, but she sobered up and then went on to get a PhD in neuroscience. She wanted to understand the relationship between the human brain and pleasure-seeking, here's what she found. We don't become addicts because our brains are broken, but because they're working properly. We're designed to always want more. Think about it. Your brain will get used to the intense pleasures only to want more. The fundamental issue isn't whether pleasure is good or bad. It's that there is something deep inside of you that pleasure can never feel. Pleasure isn't supposed to make you grasp ever more tightly to your passing life. It is meant to loosen your grip on life and to point you to God and to make you long for eternal pleasures of heaven, which are ours in part now in Jesus, but will one day make their way to earth. The purpose of pursuit of pleasure is to be a pathway to God, the giver of the pleasure. Isn't that what C.S. Lewis says? If I find in me a desire, a longing, a yearning that I'm going after and yet I'm disappointed, he said it must mean not that my pleasure system isn't working, but it must mean that it's working properly because I was made for another world. And here's what Jesus does. He says, you're seeking, you're seeking, you're seeking, you're striving, you're working. But that pursuit is meant to point you to another, to me. You see, Jesus is giving them real bread. But in one year, one year from this, he's going to give them something far more important. He's going to give them his life. He who made all things will go to a cross. The author of life who came from heaven will lay down his life to give us eternal life. He will be the hand-selected Son of God sent from heaven, blemish-free, perfect 
lamb who will be slain. He will be the unleavened bread. Leaven in the Bible is always corrupting. It's, it's viewed as put a little in it and it will corrupt the whole. He is alone perfect. And he himself will drink the bitterness, the bitter herbs of Passover. He himself will drink the bitterness on the cross that you and I might be set free and never drink bitterness again. He is the one who satisfies. He is the one who will seal you. He is the one who stands guard over your life here and now. He is your satisfaction. He is your protection. He is your everything. He will quench your thirst. He said, I'm better than Moses. My bread is better than Moses. My life is better than Moses. My sacrifice is better than Moses's. I'm here. And if you come to me, you have it. Which leads us to the last point. How do we get it? You see, it's one thing to say, okay, Lord, I know I'm vulnerable. I know I'm weak. I know I chase after things. I get it. If you can see that, amen. And if you can see who Jesus says he is, I will satisfy you. I will protect you. I will seal you. I will wash you. Amen. But here's the thing. Just because we see who we are and see who he is does not mean those are actually ours. And so Jesus would go on to say, how do we get it? One, the Father must draw you. That whole discussion at the bottom on the reason they can't see, it's because the Father has not yet drawn them. Salvation is of the Lord. The Father must draw. The Father must draw. But we also must eat. There's a wordplay happening here, and this is what drives those who aren't being called by the Father away. Because Jesus will say something so radical as, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. Verse 50, 51, 54, 56, 58. If you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you will live forever. And they think this is cannibalism. Who is this guy? Do we really need to cook him? Do we really need to eat his flesh and drink his blood? And that is what sort of drives them away because their eyes have not been enlightened. But then Jesus actually explains he's using this eating my flesh and drinking my blood as a synonym for belief. So look at verse 29. This is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent. Verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Verse 40, whoever looks on the son and believes in him shall have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. Verse 47, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes, in other words, eating, is symptomatic of something deeper. Now think about the fall in the garden. Do you think that the fruit that they ate was poisonous? And that is what made them, made us fall? No, you wouldn't say that. You would say that there was a sin beneath the eating. And the sin beneath the eating was rebellion and treason. 
and their eating was an expression outwardly of where they were inwardly. And so when Jesus says, eat me, and I think he's talking about the supper coming later. He wasn't just saying, if you just eat my blood, drink my blood and eat my flesh, you'll be saved. No, it's beneath it. Beneath it. And what's beneath the eating? It's believing. It's believing. Why the imagery of eating? Redemption was lost with eating. A redemption seems to be inaugurated with eating in faith, of digesting, of taking in, of savoring, of delighting in Christ. If that is where you are, where you see your need and the ways that you fall short, and you see his sufficiency, his beauty, and you bow the knee to Jesus, you know what Jesus says? You, you are safe and secure from all alarms. You, you are pardoned, you are loved. I will not leave you behind. All that the Father has given me will be taken up. You will not be forget, forgotten ever. You are safe. You are secure. You are satisfied in him. Let's pray. Father, I pray uh, that you will help us by your spirit to feed upon you. Lord, help us, Lord, in the moments of temptation and striving to see that all that we need, we have in you. Call us back to yourself. Father, when cancer knocks on our doors and when car wrecks happen to us and when those hard things in life that, that may come our way help us uh, as believers to understand that nothing will separate us from your love. Father, help us to marvel in the fact that we are safe and we are secure and we are satisfied and we are known and we are yours. Thank you, Jesus, for being uh, all that we've needed. We love you. Amen.